I'm not sure I'm very well qualified to give anybody any advice on uh, on, on anything like that. But I guess I think looking back and what I've learned in hindsight is. I'd say definitely try and get a really broad experience. There's loads of methods, loads of sectors, loads of different business challenges out there. And that's the beauty of research. It's just so much variety and so much challenge. So I'd really encourage people to try and get as much a variety of experience as possible. Be patient. So there's a lot to learn. And it kind of really pays off, I think, in the industry. If you take a bit of time, don't try and run before you can walk and just keep being a sponge and soaking it up and eventually you kind of get to this this sort of tipping point in research i think where you suddenly realize hey i actually actually kind of know a bit about what i'm doing here and i can stand up and not feel like a total fraud Hello and welcome to the Soapbox podcast, a podcast that gives you an insight into the people that do insight best. I'm Richard Brown, a research director at Box Clever, and I'm joined as ever by the wonderful Tilly Lewis, our marketing manager. Combined, we make the Soapboxes. Box Clever, as many of you will know, is a full service market research agency based in Leeds, and we're all smart, creative thinkers. And as such, we do like to get on our Soapbox. We often have plenty to say. As insight specialists, we spend our time helping our clients understand what makes consumers tick. But on this podcast, we'll find out what makes the people behind the insights tick, what keeps them up at night, and what makes them who they are. Our third guest is the rock on which our qualitative church is built and a big man with a murky past. His LinkedIn photo was taken in 1999. He's also my line manager. It's Matt Coggan. Matt. Thanks for joining us today. You're known for your effortless delivery of premium quality debriefs and as being an all-round lovely bloke. You've also got a BSc in chemistry and management. How are you? I'm good. It's true. All of what you said, apart from almost all of it. Right. How does a man with a BSc in chemistry and management end up in research it's not i don't think it's that's far a tangent to get into research from chemistry and management if you think about chemistry it's design your experiments have a sample have a method have some objectives what are your conclusions everyone can remember those little uh do you not do did you do chemistry you must have done chemistry i did it at gcse all oh, right okay i see what i'm dealing with here <laughs> um so no chemistry methodical structured curious it's research right well yeah i suppose in a way it is and if you didn't get into research matt what do you think you might have ended up doing good question tilly i've had this debate with a few people over the years and there's there's not one single answer for a while i thought what i should have done I, i love cars old cars new cars but definitely definitely the old ones and I, I think this still this is still my my business opportunity that I'm going to press into at some point. But there's an opportunity for a, a classic car club, low price point that's accessible for everybody. So on a weekend, Tilly, Rich, and I we can go down our car club, hand over fifty quid or something, and take a take an old MGB convertible out for for a couple of hours, take it for a spin or something. So it may, may have been a, a dodgy car 
salesman, as also like that. Swiss Tony. Swiss Tony. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or I did, I almost, before I got into research, I was looking at getting into the green energy sector, which at the time, as you can imagine, many decades ago, wasn't really a, a thing. And if I'd have done that, I think I'd have been quids in. I'd have been Retired, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't do that. I uh, got into this. So thirdly, Rich and I agreed on this earlier, food is the best thing in the world. And so if you had a job that involved you just going around the country, choosing the, the best places to eat, basically a restaurant critic, and just eating amazing food and getting paid for it, count me in. Mm, I'm with you there. Sam told us that he worked for the Yorkshire Stripping Company Did he when he was young. Yeah, it's not as interesting as it sounds. Catherine worked at a bingo hall. Have you had any ropey old jobs? I once was a trampoline salesman. <laughs> that, I really wasn't expecting that answer. I had my own little concession on the car park of a local garden centre where I would, as a 16-year-old boy with a one of those slidey credit card machines that nobody had taught me how to use, used to hang around letting the kids play on the trampoline and the, and the swings that we were, the only I on my own was left in this car park to sell. Occasionally I'd sell one and then maybe I'd remember how to use the card machine. Otherwise, <laughs> I think everyone in my village had a half price trampoline at some point. But um, yeah, that was a unusual job. How do you start the sales pitch for trampolines? <laughs> <laughs> um, would you like to bounce on that? <laughs> Is pretty obvious. But um, give it a go. She's particularly springy. I, don't, I'm, <laughs> I, don't, I, I didn't really have a sales pattern. I more kind of sat in the shed and let the people play. Can you remember what the business was called? Swings and Things. Oh, good. I, I, I didn't think I could answer that question and it came to me. as a <laughs> deep, suppressed memory. <laughs> well, thankfully, you did get out of the trampoline game and you're with us in research. Who said I'm out of the trampoline game? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. I've made a dangerous assumption. <laughs> Matt, tell us about your, your journey in research. Where have you been? How did you end up at Box Clever? So, as with most people that are in this industry, I this wasn't the plan. So, finished university, went home, went traveling for a little while and had a great time um, down in Australia. And then came back. And in, back in the day, we used to have this three or four inch thick UCAS book of graduate opportunities that you would flick through and every every kind of decent sized company had a page on who they were and what opportunities there were and just going through that process of, of elimination and just found one for a company called Millwood Brown who are part of WPP and it just said are you interested in people are you interested in what makes people tick are you interested in brands and advertising and I thought yeah that sounds that sounds good that's me I, I'm definitely interested in, in people I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a people person and it was quite local so Along I went, I don't really remember a conscious decision to go for qual or for quant, but that's how it was organised at Millwood Brown at the time. And yeah, did the interview, obviously said the right things and and got onto the graduate scheme at Millwood Brown, along with about 12 or 15 other people at the time. And, and yeah, got a great education in advertising research and psychology and, and in qual research in general. So started at Nunwood, got lucky. A few people, and we restructured and a few people left, which threw me into a more senior position than I was clearly qualified for. And I'm still blagging that. But 
Nunwood was, a, again, amazing group of people for quite a long time, really kind of growing, fast-paced, innovative, fun. A little bit too much fun at times, which I'm sure you'll try and get back to. But yeah, and then from there, I got made redundant because... I won't get into that either. <laughs> but you can't. I can't go into <laughs> due that. Due to the legal requirements <laughs> of the payout. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably true. And joined a company, which was a complete change of pace. I was, To be honest, I was kind of burning out. And so being almost forced to be made redundant rather than voluntarily, I just chose an agency that was much more chilled out, only two or, two, two or three people at the time. But it was called The Cog. Wow, this is meant to be. I'm I'm Matt Coggan. This is the Cog. Didn't quite work out so well for the owner of the Cog, who was now not the owner of the Cog because clearly Matt Coggan's the owner of the Cog. So uh, I wasn't that welcome uh, after a while there. But no, it was great at the time. I, I kind of met my wife when I was when I was working there. They said I could move down to Nottingham and work from there for a bit. At that point, the whole world imploded with the financial crash in 2008 and I'd only been with the company for just over a year. And again, I got the opportunity at that point. He said, look, I think this is going to go really badly for research for a while. How would you feel about me sort of making you redundant and, and voluntarily? Which was not the plan, but I, I took it. I thought I'll back myself to try and find another job. And actually that, that redundancy paid for my wedding. So it was a really good time. Went to JRA Research, which are the sort of big company in Nottingham. Yeah, quite a big size, but not, not that well known uh, at the time. Joined Doing Qual with uh, Sarah and Amy, a few other people, and again, great team. And then ended up running the company. Simple as that. Just ended up running it. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite that simple. And uh, it was, it was, it's a quite a challenging one in that it was, it was a kind of, kind of company that I was quite different to them. And that's probably why I was asked to sort of lead it for a while but in the end i sort of decided that i was the odd one out rather than me trying to change everybody else and at the time so i'd left numwood where i worked with claire and with sam and with Catherine, a few others at, at box clever as well and sam and claire came to see me to try and get me to give them some work i think at the time as a sort of freelancers and i didn't really have much work to, to give them but they also said oh well, maybe one day you could you could join us and i thought i run this company you know i don't need to do that obviously i wasn't that arrogant but but you know <laughs> you kind of didn't think that was going to happen but after after a while claire spoke to me again and said look you should think about it and my wife said look again you're burning yourself out here do you really want to carry on doing that and so i took the plunge surprised claire by accepting her offer which i think she was trying to bluff me into some into some uh some lower offer but um <laughs> but i said yeah and she went oh oh really are you sure so yeah joined box clever almost nine years ago and what advice matt would you have for any youngsters out there considering a career in qual or an insight i'm not sure i'm very well qualified to give anybody any advice on uh, on, on anything like that but i guess i think looking back and what i've learned in hindsight is I'd say definitely try and get a really broad experience. There's loads of methods, loads of sectors, loads of different business challenges out there. And that's the beauty of research. It's just so much variety and so much challenge. So I'd really encourage people to try and get as much a variety of experience as possible. Be patient. So there's a lot to learn. And it kind of really pays off, I think, in the industry. If you take a bit of time, don't try and run before you can walk and just keep being a sponge and soaking it up and eventually you kind of get to this this sort of tipping point in research i think where you suddenly realize 
hey, I actually, I actually kind of know a bit about what I'm doing here and I can stand up and not feel like a total fraud. And then you kind of get your, get your confidence and then you, then you can really fly from there. So yeah, I'd say to a young person, you know, get involved in the MRS, the AQR, there's loads of really good events out there, loads of opportunity to, to network and to learn. So to do that and then find yourself a good home. Every agency is not the same. There's a lot of different cultures, a lot of different teams, a lot of different people out there and, and there is a right one for you. But And if it isn't right, then go and find the right one. Don't don't hang out in somewhere where, that it, where it's not working because it, it's too tough if, if you do do that. It's got to be quite tough, haven't you, I think, in the research industry. And I think qual, often people think it's a bit of chatting and it's soft and it's very, very easy. But actually, you've got to be pretty resilient even when you get experience and you're arguably quite good at your job, it can still be really tough, can't it? You've got to be very adaptable, haven't you? You've just got to be able to fit into all kinds of situations with loads of different people and for it to feel natural and authentic so that people feel comfortable and get that rapport so people can open up and, and tell you their deepest, darkest insights or hopes or fears, whatever whatever it might be. What's been the biggest insight of your career would you say Matt? I mean that's a question and a half isn't it? What's the biggest insight in your career? I would say and this is only because it comes to mind not because it's necessarily the biggest one in my career but the one that sticks out is one that I think we we ended up being finalists in the the Prosper Riley Smith AQR Excellence Award with. This is quite a few years ago now but I remember we were working for one of Europe's largest spice companies which is it's a good thing right yeah mm-hmm. big spice company so they're based out in scandinavia we used to get to go over to copenhagen and, and go and hang out with the uh, the danes and the swedes and talk about talk about spices which is great fun in their kind of experimental kitchens and stuff but we were doing this project for them where we were looking for innovation opportunities and as part of the, the work to feed into that i spent some time in the kitchens of Michelin star restaurants around around the country goes back to my thought on should have been a restaurant critic like that that's really my home that's where I should have been but we suddenly realized I suddenly realized that this whole this this whole movement around provenance and food and how important it is to really know especially at that kind of level of cooking loads of specifics about exactly where is your meat from and what is that cut and how is that lamb being fed and what's its name and what's the farmer's second daughter's third <laughs> boyfriend's name and all this kind of stuff and alongside that chefs top chefs had no idea about pepper so one of the two you know salt and pepper right just absolutely fundamental in cooking and seasoning Salt, we'll talk about mold and salt, and everyone's now got a little packet of mold and salt that we cook with at home. But everyone was blindsided by pepper. Like, no one had thought about, well, does it matter? Like, where's the best pepper in the world? And how do you kind of prepare pepper? Like, is it okay to have it pre-ground or should you grind it freshly? And and so out of that insight of, wow, we'd never thought about pepper, we ended up creating a whole innovation platform. They ended up with, you know, they get like kind of wine tasting experts in schools they had this whole course for chefs that um, was all around pepper tasting all the different notes and the smells and the uh, all the different essential oils that are involved in it and now my top tip is black peppercorns telly cherry they're the creme de la creme that's what, yeah. want, that's what you want to look for or don't use pepper that has already been ground it's oxidized 
ain't going to work. It's going to be a nasty taste. Got a fresh grind. Got to do it fresh. Now, Matt, I deliberately told a lie about you at the end of the previous podcast with Sam. I only did it to try and lure listeners in. I assume that you have tried a Cornetto. Yeah, that's true. Good. What is your favourite ice cream? You mean what's my favourite Cornetto or any ice cream I can go with here? Hey, look, if you want to go Gino, Ginelli, I'm <laughs> fine with that. Now you're talking. I don't know why Vionetta have never brand extension into lollies. They've always stuck with the big loaf of ice cream, haven't they? They should have, they should have got into that. That's one name that popped into my head. But um, I mean, I'm going, I'm going mint chocolate chip as a flavour, just broadly speaking when it comes to ice cream. Refreshing. Mm. A little bit of chocolate always, always a good thing, right? But what's my go-to ice cream? Yeah, I, I think you know. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Solero. Again, bit of ice cream, bit of sorbet, refreshing. Seems to last last a bit of time. It's not all gone in one go. It so, ticks a lot of boxes, doesn't it? I think for a while I was a Twister man. Mm. Tilly, Twisters have got too small. I feel you can still get a full size Twister. Can you? They're hard to come by. That is true. Worth seeking out. Well, Cornettos. <laughs> you started with Cornettos. They have got to have got smaller, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they have. I've got a quite a sort of clear memory of me and my cousins eating Cornettos like in a summer holiday in the, the late 80s and just them being unimaginably good. Mm. You know, just I couldn't get over how good a Cornetto is. But today's Cornettos, they're nothing like it, are they? No. My, my boy's got an annoying habit that I'm trying to wean him off of just... First thing he does, first bite to take out the Cornetto. What what would you go for? What, how would you approach Cornetto first bite? Oh, he's not biting the end off, is he's he? Biting the end off. Oh, with the chocolate in. Biting the end off with the chocolate. Not even aware that there's chocolate in there, but just it feels like an easy thing to have a quick nibble on. Well, speaking of the things that you get at the bottom of desserts, I wanted to give an update on the plastic bottomed Knickerbocker glory controversy uh, that I mentioned during Sam's podcast. So you'll remember that. I'm not convinced, but I have a memory of a Knickerbocker glory where the little strawberry bit at the bottom turned out to be plastic, turned out to be fake. What? Exactly. Heartbreaking. And then we questioned, did that happen? Why would that happen? Are you talking, are you not talking screwball tubal here, are you? You're talking Knickerbocker glory. I don't know. Um, I would have said Knickerbocker glory, but whatever my dessert, if I think it's got a syrupy bottom... I want that syrupy bottom. So I text my mum and I said, do you have any memory of this? And she said, I don't remember that, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. (laughs) So this is now an appeal. If you were in the Great Yarmouth area in the late 80s, early 90s, and you suffered some sort of tragic fake bottom dessert incident, please email Tilly. Do let us know. Matt, back to you mentioning your son had a a bad habit of biting the bottom of an ice cream. What's your worst habit? I've got loads of bad habits, Tilly. <laughs> Maybe being a bit of a smart ass sometimes, like my wife will say, like I can't ever get anything like wrong. And I, if I don't know the answer to something, I'll try and confidently make up the answer to it and just style it out, which... It's a worry for any clients listening, isn't it? <laughs> Are you telling me, Rich, that you haven't ever sat in a debrief and a client's asked a question and you've like rabbit in the headlights gone, I have, in your mind you're going, I have no idea what the question means, what I'm supposed to say, everyone's looking at me, I've got to say something. And so either you do a 
you kind of politician it and just answer a different question and look at them really like nod at them and go I, I hope that's okay and then move on straight away or you just try and make it up on the spot which is nodding at me for uh, listening <laughs> no, I'm not <laughs> nodding I'm not nodding I mean I'm sure I've done that but well I'd like to think that now I'd be confident enough to say I don't know I'll have to follow up on that yeah and never obviously follow up <laughs> I'm talking about the, I mean, I'm talking about the past but that's a good point you mentioned there I think that's one of the things that is important in in research generally to like be honest be genuine and if you don't know it's totally fine to say that and like own it and be like I'm not quite sure what, what the answer is I, I'm gonna find out for you but um people can smell the bs if you, you know, if you're not careful well I think it's a problem that affects all parts of insight but certainly qual I think if you, if you haven't asked the question in the survey, you can kind of say, well, we didn't, we didn't ask that or we can't cut the data in, in that way for X reason. But sometimes with qual, people just expect you to have every answer to every question, to every thought, and you haven't. Yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes, they, uh, again, you have to watch out for this, but it's like that sort of trick you see where you see a load of a paragraph written down and they've missed out various letters in, in the words but you can still read it you kind of you mentally fill in the gaps i think sometimes with qual once you've genuinely listened to somebody and spent some time with them and understood their perspective and their their experience for a particular subject matter you can start filling in the gaps based on but based on your assumption on you know an informed guess but if you're not careful you can kind of start doing that without realizing that it actually has a gap that I'm filling in rather than that was what they told me. So that was like, I guess that's the, that's the kind of principle of qual, isn't it? That assumption is the mother of all, as they say. So you need to make sure that you have asked and found out what they actually, people, people actually think and what people actually do. Yeah. What do they say? To assume makes an ass out of you and me. That's a more polite version of the phrase, Tilly. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, do you have a motto or a mantra that you like to live by or try to live by? I don't, I wouldn't say I've got a motto or a mantra. I mean, do, do people have a motto and a mantra? No, I think Rich would, wouldn't you? No, <laughs> I hate that sort of thing. I'd say like... Live, laugh, love. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> have you been to Richard's Kitchen today? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's less mantra and it's just more things that maybe you're trying to achieve in your everyday life, isn't it? You you know, know, I'd say like the way the way I try and do things when I can, is, I guess, touching on what we just talked about, try and just be yourself. Like, mm. it's okay to be you. And I guess the older I've got, the less, or the more confident you get, I guess you get in being yourself and it not being a bad thing. Or if you're different to somebody else, that's not a problem. That's that's a good thing. So try and just be, be you and keep things in perspective. So I try not to, to get too too bothered by things too worried about things and be aware of how blessed i, I am in what i do and 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 my kind of situation in life i guess just to be kind to people you know and and, and have fun like laugh some hard things in life so every opportunity to to laugh and have a good time and encourage people and to be kind and to be forgiving i think that's probably one of the, the lessons that quarrels taught me the most is just how important it is to to genuinely understand people and to listen to people and, and from that point of view it gives you a greater empathy and an ability to forgive people for what they say and what they do because you know there's probably a reason behind all of that and you don't understand some some of that that's going on so when you see all the brexit stuff or the you know all the polarization in society these days a lot of that is just because 
people just don't haven't taken the time to listen and to understand other people and that, so that's how i live my life tilly i think that um qual does make you a bit more reflective doesn't it mm. you instantly you know judge people when you when you meet them but how many times have you had a focus group of six or eight people in front of you and you've gone she'll be rubbish mm. she'll talk too much mm. he won't know anything about this and she's probably a misrecruit and then you're wrong mm. you know, yeah you just you're just wrong like the, the people that people surprise you all the time don't they yeah you drive up to someone's house and you're going to do a depth inside and you make a million judgments straight away on who they are what they're going to say what what the house is going to be like and invariably it's not i did a project for nokia once back in the day and like egypt is the best example of that in some ways we kind of go down these these dusty back streets and in, 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 i used to think you know, i had to go downtown cairo into these kind of alleyways and, and, and dusty streets and it's all relatively looks quite run down and stuff and you open these big wooden doors to go into the respondents homes and it's like palatial in there totally absolute 100 percent contrast gold leaf pharaohs <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think I might have inadvertently stumbled into a pyramid. <laughs> but yeah, don't judge. Don't judge. You mentioned the upper echelons of Egyptian society. But my understanding is that you could have been a lord had things turned out different. Tell us about that. I think it's true. The 101st Archbishop of Canterbury, friend to Her Royal Highness the Queen Mother and many common people as well, um, was the the right honourable lord, or I think he was a baron as well, or something like Donald Coggan. And in the past, that was a, a hereditary peerage. And Margaret Thatcher, big shout out to to, to Maggie, um, <laughs> changed the law and made it a life peerage. Otherwise, sitting here now, my dad would be Lord Coggan, and as the eldest of the the four Coggan clan, I would be in line to the throne. What could have been? What could have been, Tilly? I think she made a mistake. I'm not saying it's her biggest mistake, but you'd have been a great lord. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to really know what you do as a lord other than use every opportunity to drop that into the, into a conversation. What what do they do? They I Would mean, it I, be, like, would it automatically appear on, say, if you got letters sent in the post, would you be referred to as Lord Matt Coggan? I think I would ensure that was the case today. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> plain plain bookings, you know, restaurant, restaurant bookings. Restaurant bookings, yeah. You'd leverage it, wouldn't you? It kind of makes you kind of tempted to go out there and buy a, a square centimetre of a an island somewhere that affords you this, this peerage, which I'm not going to do. Fake it till you make it. It's not really the right way to go. Good and evil. When you say you, you believe in it, are we talking about like an inherent goodness in, in people and an inherent evil in people or the creation of those states this is going to get deep don't worry the next question's about crisps okay good <laughs> no absolutely i think this world is good is made of good and bad and i think it's a battle and i think you've got to like deliberately proactively choose to bring more of the good into the world and fight against the bad stuff because because it's, it's a real thing i'm a christian right so i believe in god i believe in the devil and in fact, probably that's probably if you've got a question about what kind of what people take the mick out of me for, or what what's niche. I don't think Christianity necessarily is niche, or like being believing in Jesus, or whatever. But that's probably the thing that's that's different about me compared to a lot of my peer group, I guess. 
I don't think Christianity is niche, is it? Well, <laughs> a couple of billion people. <laughs> I think today it's it's probably characterised more as a, as a niche or not a mainstream thing. Yes, but I guess it comes back ground to, to not judging people, doesn't it? And taking each person as they come. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you say that, Tilly, but... Here we go. The, the answer to the next question, I feel we will judge him if he answers it incorrectly. <laughs> what is your go-to crisp? Uh, okay, I'm um, just a couple of angles here. First of all, I'm going to um, shout out to my daughter, Bethany. Nine years old, she knows her crisps, and she's got me back into prawn cocktail. Walker's prawn cocktail do not taste like... A, I don't understand how the flavour of crisp prawn cocktail... And a prawn cocktail, which I also, a bit of bre granary bread and some prawn cocktail. Oh, it's a good, It's a good 1970s dessert. It's never left the... No. No, it's still, it's current, it's a current thing. It's coming. Oh, not. Or a starter. Yeah. Sorry, dessert, mm. starter, rather. Really out there. Oh, right? yeah, like Wild. That's, <laughs> that's, that's my, ni it's my niche interest. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't hear dessert. A I'd starter is dessert. Um, why do we do it in that order? It's a kind of cultural thing, isn't it? In other, other cultures don't you don't have a start a main dessert it's just bring it out yeah let's eat let's eat mm. food is yeah. food but so prawn cocktail i'm going with that mate i am absolutely with you on that i love walkers i think prawn cocktail is often overlooked but it's got a delicious sweetness that can be a great contrast to your savory sandwich well we've had quite a bit of a debate on on the following question we come back around to this quite a bit where do you stand on the chips Versus fries, versus wedges debate. I don't understand the question in that. What, is this a debate? Yeah, if you have one, if you have to pick one, what one are you going for? I, I'm, I'm a lover, not. I hate to tell you, I love all of those things. The, the thing that I stand firmly against, and I will die on that hill, Rich, is soggy. Any of the above. I, I'll take wedges. I'll take fries. I'll take chips. And the, the chip area is the one that has this problem the most. But if it's not crispy. So nothing... do you have a time and a place for all of them? Are you, are you sitting on the fence, basically? No, I'm not sitting on the fence. I'm embracing I'm embracing it all. Having said that, there is, is there anything more disappointing in life than deciding, you go, I'm going to have fish and chips from the fish and chip shop? And you go there and the smells, like, oh, it's amazing. And you get home or you sit on the wall outside and the chips just, just don't cut it. They're just not cooked to perfection. There's a bit of sogginess about them or something. Yeah, that, good fish and chips is incredible. Bad mm. fish and chips is terrible, isn't oh. it? There was a question I meant to ask you ages ago. What were you like as a youngster? What's young Matt? Hairier. <laughs> <laughs> On my head. <laughs> I was happy. I had a happy um, childhood, a ha happy youth. Cool pet, like great parents, great brothers and sisters, loads of really good friends, you know, living in a nice part of the world. I, I grew up in, well, I'm a Yorkshireman, born in Bradford Royal Infirmary. Big at the Bingley, Deb, Amelia. And then I moved to Leamington Spa, Royal Leamington Spa, should I say? Sorry, forget the uh, Royal Connection. And then a little village outside Solihull in the West Midlands. So I, I lived in some nice places in the world and I was happy. Loads of friends, sporty, did loads of sport, basketball, rugby, football, cricket, bit of athletics, squash, tennis, whatever. And sociable, a little bit too sociable with the boys down the pub and all that. I mean, I've mentioned more than once your your murky past. Are you prepared to tell us any stories from that time or is it all a closed book? I'm not sure if I can. I mean, it's sex, drugs and rock and roll. 
not necessarily in that order. But yeah, what I've done quite carefully, Rich, over time is cultivated a whiter than white persona whereby if anyone, and this is always, always winds my mates up, if there's anything that goes wrong, like the last person that any of any of our mums assume that would be involved or would be instigating it would be me. They're like, oh, it won't be Matt. Matt, <laughs> Matt won't be involved in that. I might have been orchestrating the whole thing. But well, no. he's, he said he believed in good and evil. <laughs> and now we understand why. <laughs> this sounds like the omen. We've all had fun and games in our, in our younger years. I'm very much on the straight and narrow these days, but I could tell you some stories, Rich. I could tell you some stories. Tell us about um, a brand or a product that you have an emotional connection with. I mean, if I'm thinking back to some of the clients that I've worked with, I guess, maybe one that immediately pops into my mind would be would be World Vision. So I've been you know, really honoured in the past to have done work with those guys and um, working with organisations that are trying to, to genuinely change the world for better getting back into good and evil again but generally trying to lift people out of poverty that are trying to care for people and and invest in, in people and communities like good on them and more than happy to pour my heart and soul into that kind of research and, and try and help in, in whatever way i can so them possibly lint <laughs> <laughs> it's actually quite a hard question to it's answer, a really hard question yeah, emotional connection with I don't know whether as researchers we get so kind of used to the lingo of it all and the whole kind of the way that the, the whole construct of brands and stuff that you have this kind of this kind of magnetism, opposite magnetism about any of that kind of stuff that you think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really emotionally connected with any brand, which is obviously rubbish. But yeah. If you could say thank you or sorry to someone, who would it be and what would you say? Ooh. So I'll answer this really honestly. And I'll think about it in a work context. And I've, I have said sorry to this person as well. Am I allowed to name names, do you think? Yeah, of course. Okay, she'll be okay with it, I'm sure of it. So in my days at a previous research agency, we were working hard and we needed help. And from across the Atlantic, help came in the form of a wonderful lady and, and now a client of ours, Janice Townley. And she was and still is canadian and she came <laughs> over to join us new country obviously new new job new you know, new everything and i was so fraught and busy and had so little time to to dedicate to, to supporting her and and uh, helping her to settle in helping her to to be able to do the great job that she could do at at, at the agency and I just and I just didn't. And after a little while, she left, and I just felt absolutely gutted and awful that I felt like I'd really let her down, especially given you know, moving to a whole new country and it was a really big deal for her. And so, years later, thankfully, um, our paths crossed, and she became a client, and I was able to say, "I'm really sorry, Janice. Like, really, genuinely sorry." And she was really gracious and said, "Oh, what do you mean?" Not a problem. So thanks, Janice. Big shout out to Janice. And thank you. This is this is not some kind of sycophantic shout out and push for a um, for some cheeky pay rise or anything. It definitely is. It de I'm joking. Yeah. I'm joking. <coughs> Subtext, of course it is. Um, but I think probably in terms of a, a, a tipping point in, in my life, there's been a few, but certainly moving from where I, where I was and in some ways, you know, having, you know, 
you kind of reach the point of running an agency and something you think right that's where i'm at and it's only going to get bigger and better from from there you can get quite kind of be careful you're not kind of egotistical about it and you think that there's a you've actually earned it whereas actually a lot of the time you've just been in the right place at the right time that a sort of a thank you would be to claire for saying come and join us like come and do something a bit different and you aren't going to be running things and you're going to be working with us and you're not going to have any people to manage and you're just going to be doing research but that at the time my daughter was was less than one and i wasn't seeing her i was awake half the night worrying about hr issues at the company and and my life changed and joining Box Clever. I was able to be myself. I was able to pick Bethany up from nursery. I was able to just do good good work with really good people and, and really sort of change my my relationship with research. So, so yeah, she won't ever listen to this today, so don't, don't <laughs> worry. So there you have it. It's not just focus groups, service stations, missed recruits and making up quotes. There's so much more to qual and to insight and the people behind it. We must say a massive thank you to Matt for being with us and for being so open and such a gent. We hope you've had as much fun as we have, Matt. On our next episode, we're joined by Charlotte Hodgson. She's Quant's rising star, the Northeast's finest, and she's possibly the most positive person we've ever met. She's also partial to a chicken parmo. As always, we'd love to hear from you. So please do get in touch with us via our Twitter account at WeBoxClever and let's get a hashtag trending. The hashtag is hashtag SoapBoxClever and that's all one word. You can also email us via TillyLewis at BoxCleverConsulting.com. So if there's a question about market research, insight, BoxClever, or you just want to talk about desserts, just get in touch and thank you for listening. Oh,